We've talked about Hamlet a little bit on this show before, but I have no idea if we'll ever get around to actually doing an episode on Hamlet in any of its roughly two bajillion film adaptations, even on the Close Enough feed. So this might be the only time I really have to talk about Shakespeare's most famous soliloquy at any length. I'm not exactly sure why Hamlet's melancholy monologue in Act 3, Scene 1 is universally agreed upon to be the greatest soaring mouthgasm ever crafted in the English language. I mean, it's pretty much just a love letter to suicidal ideation. And it's good, don't get me wrong, but it's not even the best thing Shakespeare wrote. It's not even the best thing he wrote in that play. But I get it, it has a catchy hook right in the first line, so it's the one everybody remembers. Today's film, apart from the title, has very little to do with Hamlet. Unlike Hamlet, this film is a comedy. That's important to know up front, because if you miss that part, you can easily find yourself confused by what you're seeing, since this movie is about some inherently unfunny shit. At its most basic level, it's a story about the early days of World War II, and the Nazi invasion and subsequent occupation of Poland. But it's also about a jealous husband and his philandering wife, and about creating art in the face of government censorship, and about the hunt for a Nazi secret agent. A surefire recipe for comedy gold. As a relevant side note, this was also filmed while the aforementioned occupation was still going on, and was released two months after its leading lady died in a tragic accident. So unless the studio was relying on macabre curiosity to drive the box office, they certainly had a lot working against them. So you start with a speech about suicide from a Shakespearean tragedy, then add in ripped-from-the-headlines Nazis, and sprinkle in a healthy dose of marital infidelity, and if you're wondering how all of that adds up to anything resembling a comedy, well, that's just another day at the office for director Ernst Lubitsch, who had a knack for telling stories with sophistication and nuance that allowed him to weave a potent combination of sex and humor into the most difficult situations, a knack commonly referred to as the Lubitsch touch. Don't make it weird, it's not as dirty as it sounds. Resulting in this case in a screwball comedy with the reputation for being as charming as it is subversive. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So slap on a fake beard and please keep your seats during the soliloquy with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we drop three tons of dynamite in two minutes if you know what I mean, and discuss Ernst Lubitsch, his legendary touch, don't make it weird, and his 1942 spy thriller sex comedy Nazi satire, starring Carol Lombard and Jack Benny, to be or not to be. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome back, everyone, to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my awesome partners. Katie. And Liam. And today, we are here to talk about another old Liam pick from 1942. (laughs) 
Goddamn uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed this was, I don't know if this was IMDb, but there was some kind of ranking where this was like fifth, top 50 comedies of all time. I was like, okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. This is called To Be or Not To Be. Again, probably filled in 41, released in 42, and it is our first Ernst Lubitsch. So you can expect us to talk about that magical Lubitsch touch. The Lubitsch touch. And Katie's here with our mission briefing. Based on a story by Melchior Lengel, whose works provided regular inspiration for Ernst Lubitsch, To Be or Not To Be was adapted by Edwin Justice Mayer and Lubitsch himself although he was uncredited. It tells the story of a popular Polish theater troupe who become embroiled in Nazi politics and intrigue while trying to escape war-torn Poland. Complete with impassioned speeches and satirical antics, it is definitely not your usual World War II film. Released in 1942, only a month after the tragic death of its leading lady, Carol Lombard, it was met with decidedly mixed criticism. Despite its fantastic performances, more than a few reviewers found it distasteful to make a comedy set in the very recently bombed Warsaw, with a few judgments of Lubitsch's German nationality thrown in for good measure. The positive reviews gushed about the chemistry between Jack Benny and Carol Lombard, the smart comedic timing, and Lubitsch's willingness to satirize a dark situation in an attempt to humanize the horrors that were happening. It was nominated for Best Music Slash Score at the Academy Awards, But it lost out to Now Voyager, a film I have never heard of or seen. That movie fucks. I'm sorry. (laughs) Somehow I knew that was going to come. That movie is so goddamn good. I love Now Voyager. It is the tits. It's both. It's all of the tits. It is great. (laughs) (laughs) It's that total recall three boob tits. Sorry, I did not mean to interrupt you just then. But Now Voyager fucks with a thousand dicks. It is great. The film is now considered to be a classic that walks a fine line of dark humor and is widely regarded as one of Lubitsch's best. Having seen the film and read the reviews, I can see how it was controversial upon release and then became a classic once the war had ended. How did you guys feel about Lubitsch's use of comedy in what could have been and kind of is a dark drama? I guess I should go first since I'm the more uninitiated on this one than Liam. This is one that where I think it's tough to really try and look at it through 1942 eyes, if that's ever possible, because it's like, man, this would have felt really different if you were watching it in 1946 after you know how the war turned out, because certainly in 1941, when they were filming it, the war was not decided. Like it wasn't until probably late 42 that things were going poorly for the Germans and most you know, politicians, etc. from my vague recollection, kind of knew like, okay, it's a matter of time, but the Germans are going to, the Axis is going to lose the war. At first I was like, I figured this is, oh yeah, it's like 46 or 47 or something. And then I looked it up and I'm like, oh my, released in 42, probably filmed in 41. It's like in the middle of the war, only two years after Poland was invaded. So that puts a whole different spin to things. And so I it was hard to know kind of how to watch it in terms of how to take that satire. Now I haven't seen the great dictator, which was also something that was, uh, that was probably done mid thirties when Hitler was infamous, but hadn't invaded Poland yet, I'm assuming. And then for us on the show, our other experiences have been, or at least my other experiences have been Jojo rabbit, 
which I'm sure we'll talk about some similarities and sort of where that movie might have taken some inspiration from this one. And Look Who's Back, a pretty famous German film from 2015 based on the book. I've mentioned it before in passing here, but it's a sort of fantasy science fiction historical commentary with a lot of improvised acting and a lot of non-actors where Hitler just wakes up outside of his bunker in full uniform in like 2015 modern Germany and then starts to walk around town Borat style and have interactions with real Germans. It's really good. It's really funny. It's also terrifying in some ways, but the initial scenes of the Hitler actor walking around in the middle of Warsaw totally reminded me of that film because you're seeing these people's reactions. So yeah, I, I don't know. I watched this twice because the first time I was just trying to absorb the whole spy plot, which you guys know it doesn't take much to confuse me when it comes to spy plots. And so I was like, okay, what the hell is going on here? And also... I'm sure we'll talk about it more. The Nazis in this film are sometimes real Nazis and sometimes actors dressed like Nazis, but the plot has them intermixing with the real Nazis. So you really have to pay attention to figure out who the hell is an actor and who, who who's a regular actor in the movie and who is an actor playing an actor playing a Nazi. So that gets a little confusing. I found for the time period, the comedy was, I don't know, it reminded me a little bit of Mel Brooks, which I think Mel Brooks redid this movie in the 80s. Am I he didn't direct it. He was in a remake? remake of this that I think was in a lot of ways a musical. Ah, mm-hmm. okay. There was a lot more of a musical element to it. I have thought about watching the remake of this from 1983 many times, but every time I like look up the trailer or anything, I'm just like, oh God, I can't. I, I just can't. Cringe. Well, which is interesting because didn't he also do... Where's the song Springtime for Hitler from? Is That's that, from the, the producers. producers. Okay. So there's a there's a bit in that that is Nazi satire, but the whole movie isn't a Nazi satire. Correct. Okay. okay. That, okay cool. that Well, I mean, there is Nazi satire that goes through it because the playwright of Springtime for Hitler was a was like a Nazi grunt ah. who like wrote this musical. Okay. As a love letter to Hitler and hijinks ensue. But yeah, it's but this is you'd be hard pressed to convince me that springtime for Hitler didn't have some influence on it in the producers from to be or not to be. Yeah, I think that's going to be a common thread in this episode as we talk about influence and things that came after this. But to answer Katie's question a little more precisely on the spectrum of people who are offended by comedy talking about some dark topics. I am unsurprisingly on the not very easily offended side. Like I think life is beautiful by Benigni is a masterpiece. And I think that is a great use of literally an, a character trying to use comedy with his son to get him through a concentration camp. So it's like the darkest of material. And I think the Jewish community was very split on that. Obviously, you start talking about things like that and like my opinion only matters so much. I'm not the cultural group that's being talked about. But generally speaking, I really appreciate dark humor and I certainly liked it here, even though this is on the lighter side for dark humor. I'll I'll leave it there for now. Liam. So this movie, the first time I saw this movie, I actually didn't see the whole thing. I was hanging out with my buddy Gibby. It was just like a an afternoon. I was over at his place. We turned on Turner Classic Movies. How old were you? This was like after college. So I was I was an adult at this 
Okay. Sorry, I legally. was hoping you were going to be like 14. And I'm like, yeah, that would track you and your buddies are like, got to watch some TCM, man. No, so. I think when I was 14, there was not a Turner Classic Movies yet. AMC, though, was still kind of the stand in for like AMC's format used to be very similar to Turner Classic Movies, mm-hmm. what it is today. So I used to watch a lot of AMC, but I digress. Uh, so we came into this movie maybe around the time that the dashing young lieutenant parachutes back into Poland. Okay. Oh, you didn't start at the beginning. I, I turned it on and that was about the place where we, where we saw it. So we had no idea, zero idea that this was a comedy coming into it because it's like there are air raid sirens and like they're shooting anti-aircraft guns and this dude is trying to evade the Nazis in the woods by the railroad tracks outside Warsaw. Yeah, it's played pretty straight. Yeah, it right. is played very straight. And we were just like, oh, man. Oh, OK, cool. What movie is this? I don't know. Then we get to the Jack Benny parts. Now, I know <laughs> I know Jack Benny, not personally, but it, like when I was very little, I used to watch Jack Benny stuff like reruns from his like 1950s variety show and things like that. So I know who Jack Benny is at this point. It had been a very, 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 very long time since I'd seen Jack Benny's face. So I didn't recognize Jack Benny as Jack Benny. If I had, I would have known that this was a comedy. Mm -hmm. Not knowing that this was Jack Benny and not knowing that this was a comedy. We were still rolling into this fairly straight and we couldn't figure out if this was a shitty movie or if this movie was comic gold, we were lost because he starts coming in and running out of lines and being like, so they call me concentration camp air. <laughs> oh God. Oh God. The number of times he ends up repeating that line to the Nazi spy. We were crawling out of our skin. We were so uncomfortable. It was painful to watch. Like I it bet. was cringe on top of cringe on top of cringe. And then 20 minutes later, the real Earhart says the exact same fucking line to him. So they call me concentration caveat. <laughs> and we're like, that was all a setup for this one punchline. This might be the funniest movie I've ever watched in my entire life. Like sometimes we'll still just like, if we haven't talked to each other in six months, one of us will just text the other one. So they call me concentration camp Earhart, do they? Like, and then it would be like, oh, fuck you. I almost forgot that stupid goddamn line. Like, that's the line of this movie to me in my head forever and ever and always. Because that setup gone through so meticulously mm-hmm. and painfully over and over again, only to come back later, was one of the best payoffs I've ever seen of a joke ever. Definitely commitment. Oh, it was, they committed very, very hard. Well, Lubitsch wrote this part for Benny. I'm sure. The only one cast in the, and Lubitsch hadn't had a chance to work with him yet. And he was like, this is who I want to play this role. And he wrote or adapted because this was an, an adaptation. So, and it, it you can tell because it so perfectly fits him. And a lot of Lubitsch's stuff was adaptations throughout his career. He was very good at it. But that's a long way of answering your question that the comedy worked very well for me eventually, although (laughs) I can very well understand why it might not, because I had no idea for a large portion of this movie that I was supposed to be laughing. 
And so you've seen it since then, obviously. I have seen it since then, obviously. Yes. Now, how do you feel about the comedy from that? From like, do you see scenes now that you're first viewing? You were like, oh, it's awkward and uncomfortable. And the second viewing, have you rolling? Well, yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, the movie itself in the very early scenes, like it starts out fairly fairly straight i could see the this movie not working for audiences as well today from the outset because it opens very much like an old travel log newsreel mm-hmm. you know with that that voiceover in the beginning that's like saying the names of the different shops like lupinski and pavlovsky and i'm just like oh this could just be a pittsburgh neighborhood circa 1983 <laughs> but <laughs> right but no, it, like it's just it's he's just taking you through all the Polish names in Warsaw and then you just see Hitler standing there. And it seems very much like a strange kind of travel log newsreel. But then when they cut inside in, and you find out that they're rehearsing a play because Hitler comes in and says, I myself, <laughs> that's the first inkling that you really have. That this is going to be a funny movie and not just a bad movie (laughs) if this this movie walks that line that's like oh if this were supposed to be serious it would be bad but it's funny so it's good and then it tricks you again because then there are things in it that actually are pretty serious and played pretty straight and it does that well Mm -hmm. so this movie is it's it's all over the place yeah i agree that scene with um him and with jack benny's character and there were a lot of names that i i kept confusing sobinski with seletsky yes (laughs) it's like okay which one is which i know that these are the names of two characters in this but i can't remember but it's uh when Jack Benny's character is talking to Professor Seletsky as uh, Earhart. <laughs> and they're doing that dance. It is like both very funny and incredibly tense at the same time. Yeah. It rides both of those rails somehow in a way that is really hard to get right. Yes. No, very few directors could pull that off and then have the rest of the movie happen the way it does, especially with the ending, which we will get to. Katie, what were your thoughts? Was this the first time? You, this was the first time you'd seen it, correct? Yes, the first time I'd seen it, but not my first Jack Benny or Carol Lombard. And I read about it, so I knew kind of what it was going in because the title, I was like, why do you have that title? An iconic phrase from Shakespeare as the title of your movie, that is ballsy. And I'm familiar with this era of film, so I'm pretty open to see what was going on. And I found it to be perfectly laced between, like, this is a bunch of different disparate elements delicately stitched together in a way that shows off how great of a director this guy is and how well he choreographs the whole film from the writing to uh how his actors are um interacting and it was very entertaining to watch because i was like oh is he is he gonna pull it off are we gonna get the the you know the gymnastic stand at the end of the vault where he doesn't fall over or step out of his place and he he nails it it's very satisfying I think, especially Mm -hmm. because it's so short. 
Like, this is one of the shortest movies we've ever watched for the podcast. And it, I was yeah, like, it's like what, uh, an hour and 40 minutes, maybe it's an hour 39. Mm-hmm. So it's just tightly packed in there with a really complicated story doing a lot. And the comedy is absolutely necessary to get the point across that Lubitsch is making, I think. But yes, I think Lubitsch making this is really what makes the film. And that leads us into talking about it's the Lubitsch touch. No, so the the Lubitsch touch is not like it's not something that people came up with after the fact. Like this was an established thing during his career. It's like calling Alfred Hitchcock the master of suspense. That wasn't a retcon of like looking back at his entire filmography and going like, oh, well, he was clearly the master of suspense. No, like that was a marketing tool during his career. Uh, They would use it in advertisements and things like that. So it was hard to define, though, like master of suspense. That makes sense to people. You know what what it is that they're selling. The Lubitsch touch is a lot harder to nail down. The first time I heard it was actually also on Turner classic movies. Uh, I think it was Robert Osborne was talking about it and he called it out as being something where a lot of your background characters feel fully fleshed out and fully realized and having a lot of attention paid to them, even though they might just have like 30 seconds of screen time that person is going to be an actual lived in person. Yeah. Okay. I could, I can kind of see what you're picturing here. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like that sort of attention to detail. And a lot of this comes down to attention to detail, but that's one of the things that's a hallmark of it. That's something that you'll see today. I was just watching the other day, the big Lebowski. And that's something that the Coen brothers have picked up and do very well with all of their background. Like a character will be on for like a minute tops but it'll be unique from every other character in the movie. That was very much a part of Lubitsch's style. And something that was pretty unique at that time. Very. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was not, not necessarily a common thing. Now you had a lot of background actors who they would come in and they would play like a stock character over and over again. But Lubitsch, it was a lot more detailed and nuanced. Yeah. Like the actor uh, that wants to play Shylock. Even more so than that is the the British generals that uh, Sabinsky goes to to tell them about Professor Seletsky possibly being a spy to express his concerns. Each one of those guys, none of them are in another scene, but each one of them has a very like different and and unique character from the others. They're very distinct, all three of them. Yeah. I love the incredulity they have. Like, no, he probably just doesn't know who she is. And he's like really trying to get it through to them. And they're like, I guess. And after that fact, I was like, dude, he must have had so many more conversations with them. Like really going like, no, I'm serious, man. Everybody knows who she is. This is wild. Right. In order to get them to agree. Because in that scene, it seems that they're like, I'll make a note of it. You know, but then, oh, here he is. (laughs) Well, that, but also it's, it's the fact that. That he wasn't supposed to tell anybody he was going back to Warsaw in the first place. Mm-hmm. They're like, that's weird. Why would he tell them that? Because that's bad. And then ask for information. Would you like me to relay some messages? Just let me know who all your friends and fam are. Yeah. No biggie. Let me just write it all down here in this book that's going into Warsaw. The other thing that is kind of a hallmark of it is the sex drive that is prevalent in almost all of Ernst Lubitsch's movies. 
you'll see people discussing the Lubitsch touch and it is kind of as sexy as it sounds because a lot of it is weaving innuendos and mm-hmm. sexual tension into things that would not get cut by a sensor. Like you look at it and there's nothing wrong with it. Lieutenant, this is the first time I've ever met a man who could drop three tons of dynamite in two minutes. It's just a lot of like, can I show you my plane? You know, it's like, it's a really nice bomber. It's just a lot of things just get kind of woven in there, but it never really breaks decorum. It keeps a lot of things off screen. Yeah, like the whole affair, Carol Lombard's affair. Yeah, the whole the whole affair, which is obviously not her first one. <laughs> yeah, women cheating on husbands is a is a common theme in Lubitsch's pictures. Like it happens enough. What does that say about Lubitsch? <laughs> well, uh, he had a longtime co writing collaborator who ran off with his wife, and that ended both relationships pretty suddenly. So who's to mm. say if that had a big impact on it? But he always kept it light and fun. In his movies, I sent Dan a a video clip of uh, Billy Wilder. Oh, I love Billy Wilder. That's right. He started out writing screenplays with Ernst Lubitsch. And he talked about a a scene where somebody asked him to describe the Lubitsch touch. And he was like, here's the setup. You could give a, a thousand filmmakers this setup and they would all do it somehow different. But a king and a queen and a young lieutenant. And the queen is having an affair with the lieutenant and the king finds out about it. Write that scene. Go. And nobody would do it the way that Lubitsch did it, where the big fat king leaves. But then you see a shot that he's left his sword and his belt behind. And then he leaves. The lieutenant sees him leave. So he goes to sneak into the room to be with the queen. You never see inside the room. But he sneaks in. Then you see the king realize that he's left his sword and belt behind goes back goes in you don't see inside the room he comes back out of the room and he's buckling his sword belt back on but he realizes that it doesn't fit because it's the young lieutenant's sword belt (laughs) and he looks at it and then he realizes that there's another man's sword belt in his bedroom and then he goes back in and like it's just that weird light elegant sophisticated Still dirty. Right. And also funny on top of that, that it was just all of those things sort of woven together that just really define Lubitsch's style. I have two quick questions. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to absorb what the Lubitsch touch means, but there's like a few things mentioned in the film and you've already mentioned one of them that I was confused about, or perhaps the audience might be confused about. So I wanted to bring it up. <laughs> Not Dan. You're, you're just asking for everybody. Yeah, else. yeah. I know everything. Of course. Mm-hmm. What the hell character is, is it Shylock or Slylock? Or what's the character? Shylock. Okay. Is that from a Shakespeare play? I have no idea what yes. that is. Merchant of Venice. Ah. You've heard his lines though. I bet you have. Right. Three times at least. If there's a part of this movie that maybe doesn't age great, it's the Jewish character really wanting to play Shylock. Mm. Because Shylock is one of the weirdest, most problematic characters in all of Shakespeare. Huh. But not it's really hard to describe. He's the villain of The Merchant of Venice. Okay. And he is a very very negatively painted stereotype of Jews in Shakespeare's time. But when things go badly for Shylock at the end, he has this amazing soliloquy or this amazing speech that he gives that is kind of like, "Hey, maybe don't be fucked up to the Jews." Maybe don't do that because it's really shitty. We're people too. And it's this amazing, amazing speech. 
that's tucked away in some really unflattering portrayals of the Jewish people in this Mm -hmm. Shakespeare play. His comeuppance is that like at the end, they make him convert to Christianity. Like it's like that level of fucked up. Got him. (laughs) Yeah. Got him. (laughs) But no, it's, it's bad, but it's also like a really, really good speech that he gives. It's like, I get it's, it's tough. And I think Lubitsch is playing on that interpretation because, you know, from the Nazis perspective, that's what all Jews are like. But that doesn't make the the speech that Shylock gives any less affecting. Yeah, except is he trying to put the whole thing in there three times? Because I thought that was a little heavy handed. I was like, it would have been cool for the first two times for him to hint at it and start the speech and then get interrupted. And then finally at the end, give the whole thing. I thought giving the whole thing three times was a bit heavy, but maybe that was the point. I I couldn't tell. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. That's like, if there's a part that drags for me, that's kind of it. Yeah, I would agree. I'm like, okay, we've heard this before. Like, and it doesn't have the comedy of the other lines that we get repeated where it's like obviously for comedic effect that it's being repeated all those times. Yeah, no, I don't think it's played for laughs really at all. No, I think it's it's just really driving the point home. That might be one part where the film shows its age a little bit. The other question I wanted to ask from something we were talking about a while ago is you're talking about side characters, the people who the lieutenant goes to report the professor to. And they're talking about the actress and he's doing the whole thing. How could you, you don't know Maria Tour? He didn't know Maria Tour. And he's like, what's the big deal about that? I don't know. Now look here, young man, there are lots of people who are not interested in the theater. He makes some side comment about, I only know one actress and I hope I never talk to her again. And it seemed like an allusion to like a current event where I was like, okay, this seems like a story we're supposed to know what actress he's alluding to. And if we lived in the forties, maybe we would know. But at this point, I have absolutely no idea who he's referring to. No, I think it's an actress he used to have sex with. I mean, I got I think it's that. Like, it's just like an old, I think it's just the fact that this old guy used to bang this actress and it turned him off he, to actors period. Probably he was either married at the time or is now married and he really doesn't want to hear from her again. Like, okay, it's that kind of more of a general joke. thing. Okay. Yes. I thought for some reason they were bringing up some current scandal with an actress and some general or some British politician or something like that. I couldn't tell. I too wondered if it was a Dante's Inferno type thing where mm-hmm. all of the people that you're that Dante is writing about at the time, it was like just short of a fucking gossip rag. Right. No, if you want to see a movie like that, though, you should watch The Man Who Came to Dinner. Okay. That is a that is a comedy by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart that the entire thing is just them making fun of their friends at the Algonquin Roundtable. Mm-hmm. So, like, every character that comes in is a stand-in for somebody else, and they're usually not very flattering portraits. But it was all in good fun. And that's a very, I think that's a very tricky point if we want to talk about comedy in general real quick. Obviously, there is a stinging effectiveness to comedy that talks about current events and current people and gossip and etc. But as we all know, the further away you get from that time period the worse it ages. And it's like, if you're talking about someone really, really famous, like if you're making a joke about Michael Jackson in the eighties, probably for at least 60 years after that, people are going to be familiar with the context and who you're talking about. But like a hundred years later, are people going to know what the situation was with Michael Jackson? Maybe not. Well, and if you look at something like, uh, what was that stupid, uh, 
was that stupid Seth Rogen, James Franco movie where they all play themselves at the end of the world? Is it this is the end? I, that sounds about right. They're all playing like a movie version of themselves, but mm-hmm. they're just themselves. That movie's not going to last. Right. That was a very like in the moment zeitgeist. Everybody knows who we are because we get high all the time kind of joke. Whereas when you're making fun of Hitler, it's such an infamous historical character that like you can always make fun of Hitler. Yeah, that one's going to last for several centuries, right? You can make fun of Genghis Khan and it's still funny because everyone knows who that is. Whereas when you're making references to current actors, if you want to make a joke about Brad Pitt, it's like, yeah, that'll last longer than it will with other people. But it's like referencing the Will Smith slap at the Oscars. Like, again, it, it has a it has a finite time where that will be funny or not funny or whatever it is but people will like forget what it is so it's interesting to see how much comedy uses current people and current events because if you're aware of what you're doing you also have to be aware that it's like oh yeah this joke is not gonna last whereas these other ones will right it depends do you want your stand-up comedy to be like a classic like some of richard Pryor's stuff or do you want it to like really hit that night and maybe for the life of that special, but eventually it'll be forgotten because it's too contemporary, right? How many people watching Blazing Saddles now don't realize that Madeline Kahn is doing a Marlena Dietrich impression that whole movie? Mm, You know, it's still funny, but it's Mm -hmm. not as funny if you didn't see Marlena Dietrich playing that part. So many early Westerns at the time that, you know, it's, it's a specific thing that's being parodied. Or Warner Brothers cartoons are another good example. Like a lot of Bugs Bunny stuff is making fun of Clark Abel and all, you know, all these very famous actors when the stuff came out. When I was a little kid in the 80s and 90s watching that stuff, especially not being in America and not being familiar with old movies, I I missed all those. I could tell that Bugs Bunny was doing a caricature of someone, but I had no idea. Yeah, it was it was was a straight up caricature of Clark Abel from it happened Mm -hmm. one night chewing carrots like that is. It's a very specific call out. It's very weird. Yeah. Just like most spy related movies, but also anything that has a more complex plot where the plot is definitely a factor in the story isn't always the case, right? Sometimes the film is just more about the acting and more about other things than it is about the plot. This one is very plot driven. We start off in Warsaw in 1939, like right before it gets invaded by the Nazis, which I found as a set piece was really cool. I loved the mat in the background and like they did a good job for an old 1940s sort of mm-hmm. obviously a soundstage or, or at least a back lot. It looked pretty cool. And it's the only time we have this voiceover narration, right? It's just at the beginning of the film. I don't think it came. No, it comes in again later. It does. Okay. It comes in like twice. So the very beginning and then towards the middle after the bombing. Right. The setup at the beginning of the movie is to kind of not let you know what you're looking at. And all of a sudden we are within two minutes into the film. We're looking at Hitler walking around in a street with like all of the crowd looking at him. And some hilarious side jokes. I love the one about the delicatessen or whatever, the bakery, where he's like, or no, it was it was like a meat. It was the delicatessen. And he's like, is he interested in eating there? That's impossible. He's a vegetarian. <laughs> like Those lines were pretty great. 
And uh, it takes a while. You know, Hitler walks back into a building, starts talking to other Nazis, does the whole Heil himself thing, which I thought clearly Jojo Rabbit took inspiration from all the multiple Heil Hitler scenes in this. <laughs> where mm-hmm. people are they're they're the writers are using the Heil Hitler moments for comedy where it's like everyone's talking and then all of a sudden one guy says Heil Hitler and then everyone's saying Heil Hitler and it's like they, it doesn't drag out quite as long as it did in Jojo Rabbit but I was like oh Jojo Rabbit was clearly inspired by some of the scenes in this movie which I thought was hilarious and that's when they break uh not the fourth wall but i suppose they're they're breaking some kind of wall where they the producer stops the play and says oh you're not supposed to say that line etc now you're like oh i get it we're looking at actors and the guy dressed like hitler is an actor and so that's kind of how we're introduced to the setup of the film Right, and it's a setup for later scenes, too. They're trying to put on a play that is a, a takedown of the Gestapo. It's, it's called okay. Gestapo. They're, doing, they're trying to show what it's like to live in Nazi Germany. It's supposed to be satire, and the Polish government is like, let's, let's keep that on the down low. Okay, we're not going not gonna to do that. In the world of the movie, I don't know if it's supposed to be satire. I think they're mm. trying to play it straight, but the one guy keeps trying to get a laugh. And the director's like, this doesn't call for a laugh. This is an indictment of Nazi Germany. <laughs> He's like, I would not overlook the value of a laugh. So like, right. A laugh is nothing to be sneezed at. It's a great line. By the way, I, I feel like when I have my cast moments, I'll just throw them in where they belong. But did you guys recognize the actor who plays the producer? Oh, yeah. He was a, he's the tax man in... Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. He's yeah, he is the bank inspector in It's a Wonderful Life. Charles Halton. That was like because he pretty That's much right. looks the same. It's not like he's made up very differently. He's just like a guy in a suit. And I was like, I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also I got to say it now or I'll forget to say it later. There is the most random moment that took me all the way back to my childhood in the weirdest way where I had to dig back into like the far recesses of my brain to be like, I know that face, but I have no idea where it's from (laughs) when they do the bit with Bronski dressed up as Hitler parachuting out of the plane and landing in Scotland in the hay bale where, (laughs) (laughs) where the two Scots farmers make the joke about Rudolf Hess because famously Rudolf Hess went to Scotland and then was arrested and spent the rest of his life in prison. They, they say something like first it was Hess. Now him. So the guy with the mustache who does the like surprised face, I was like, what? I know that face. I looked him up. That's James Finlayson. And he played a pretty big role as I think the saloon keeper in Way Out West, which is a 1937 Laurel and Hardy movie, which is probably the only place I may have you guys beat on old movies because I've, I've explained it before. But famously, this very famous Italian comedian started dubbing um, Oliver Hardy's voice in old Laurel and Hardy movies mm-hmm. in like the 60s, I want to say, in Italy. And his performance is so good that in Italy, those films are just as famous as they would have been in the 30s and 40s in America because the whole joke of playing a guy who is speaking Italian but with a fake American accent is like so funny in itself that he became super famous. And Laurel and Hardy had this whole revival in Italy. So when I was a kid, 
kid in the 80s, I was still watching these old Laurel and Hardy films. And the saloon keeper, who's kind of the antagonist to Laurel and Hardy in that movie, is this actor. And he has a very similar mustache. And he has this very expressive sort of Jim Carrey-like face where he's like doing all these shocked eyes and big like silent film kind of faces. And I was like, I totally know that face. So that was a moment for me. But that like probably just whizzes by most people unless you're really familiar with Laurel and Hardy movies. <laughs> yeah, no, that one, you do have me beat on Laurel and Hardy. I would give you that. <laughs> yeah, they're great, dude. If you've never seen a lot of Laurel and Hardy stuff, like there's a reason they were so famous. They are freaking hilarious. The physical mm-hmm. comedy of those two actors is like, it's timeless. It's so good. Anyways, back to the plot. <laughs> Once it's been unfolded that we are watching the play, we get to um, the jumping off point of our of our plot where they are performing Hamlet and the lead actor and lead actress of this troupe played by Jack Benny and Carol Lombard or Carol Lombard and Jack Benny. If you're giving people their pro- their appropriate billing. Ooh, burn sick burn. That's that's true. Because She was huge. Huge yes. at this time. And this is her last movie. What's like her most famous movie? Do we have one in mind? Ooh. She was in so fucking much. She's got that very, tw- like her IMDb photo is that very 1920s silent film look. I mean, great look, but definitely like older. Yeah, I mean, she was 16 in 1924. So she was. Of the movies that are still famous Today, I would say My Man Godfrey is a big one. That's her and William Powell. And that's an that's a screwball, screwball comedy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was probably her biggest. She was married to Powell. He was her first husband. Yeah, she was married to Clark Gable, I think, when she died. Yep. It fucking broke him. Like yeah. he was not the same yeah. after that. He didn't he didn't last too much longer after that either. No, it was a it was a hard time for him after she died in that she died in a plane crash. Yeah. Yep, with her mother. Yeah, coming back from selling war bonds. Oof, that's tough. Man, planes used to crash way more back in this time period. Like the mm-hmm. 30s through the 60s it was definitely a less safe age for aviation. Well, planes were still pretty new. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> Grand scheme of things. Yeah, and she was a delight though. In this movie, I think she's absolutely great. Yeah, I really enjoy her in this. So she Receives a, a a love letter from a dashing young soldier as played by Robert Stack. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very young Robert Stack. I had kind of totally different films, but I was like, I felt the same thing the moment you see William Shatner uh-huh, in very similar. Um, Judgment at Nuremberg, yeah. where it's like, oh my God, I've yeah. seen you as an old so much that I didn't really think about what you would look like so young. and When you were young and sexy and. Kind of dashing and could drop three tons of dynamite in under two minutes. Right. And his his face changed quite a bit as an older man. So, like, you kind of hardly recognize him as a he's probably 20 in this or something. But I think most people our age recognize him from being the host of Unsolved Mysteries. You know, I like I, I see his face as an older man, like his IMDb photo. And it's like I there's always fog behind him, you know, yes. he's always walking in through the fog. You hear the, the, the theme song playing. <laughs> so they, they have a, a little moment. Carol Lombard's character, Maria arranges to have that moment during Jack Benny giving the to be or not to be speech. Yeah. says, come back and see my, come back to my dressing room. When Hamlet says to be or not to be. 
Because it's how many minutes, Liam? You should know. Well, the the soliloquy is not terribly long, but if she, that was the one thing that I was trying to figure out is who she's playing in Hamlet. Because mm. if she's playing Gertrude, then it's fine. If she's playing Ophelia, <laughs> Ophelia comes in at the end of that right. at the end of that soliloquy, so they do not have time to get it on. Right. And that soliloquy ends with him saying, "Ah, Ophelia!" Like it's right, right, just right. essentially. Yeah, I guess we can assume it's the other one. Although we do know she played Lady Macbeth in a, another production. The character did. So we'll we'll assume Gertrude. Right. So they have their moment, and then right as things are getting very passionate. War with Germany breaks out because Germany is invading and he gets called away to this. It took me a little bit. I had to like look this up to figure out. He goes with his Air Force division to join the Royal Air Force in Britain because Germany just steamrolled over Poland in just the worst possible way. And it's within weeks, I think where there is no more Polish army, but there was a huge underground resistance movement. Yeah, so uh, this wasn't part of our research, so I had to look this up just on Wikipedia real quick because I was like, well, that's if that really happened, that is effing cool that the Poles who were invaded got to go to Britain and fly their planes and then go fight Germans in the air and bomb Germany like in revenge while their country was occupied. I'm like, that's a pretty awesome thing. So yeah, these are the Polish air forces formed first in France and then in the UK during World War II after the 1939 invasion. And there was already an agreement basically between France and Poland and the UK and Poland that this would happen, probably very recent. And uh, yeah, a total of 145 Polish fighter pilots served in the RAF I bet Churchill was happy to have them. Yeah, I think the there was the 300 Polish bomber squadron, 302nd Polish fighter squadron, and 303rd RAF squadron. If I'm not wrong, those were all... They're either two of them or three of them were full of uh, Polish pilots. So I think that's what we're seeing here once we switch from fake Nazis in a play to real Nazis invading uh, Warsaw, which is definitely a switch in the movie where I'm like, oh, that's that's real, real soldiers, real goose stepping. Yes. So then we cut to Sobinski, the, the young lover in England, meeting with a quote unquote Polish resistance leader, Selecki. Professor Selecki. Professor. Professor Selecki. I mean... <sighs> I don't think he deserves that. He's not a very good dude. And he's going back to Warsaw to meet with the resistance, which is what he's saying Presumably. anyway. And he gets a bunch of information from the local Polish lads about their friends and family to give messages. But he doesn't know who Maria Tura is. Carol Lombard's character. He's never heard of Carol Lombard. Savinsky is just shocked by this shocked and that's as we were saying earlier he brings it up to the english high command and everything gets a little sus and then selecki goes back and having heard the wonders of this maria tura he has her brought to him by german soldiers and tries to get her to become a spy yeah so this setup essentially i guess would you consider uh professor selecki a double agent because i feel like he's 
mm-hmm. underground trying to talk to the resistance when really he's working for the Germans and wants so to. So really- I don't think he's, I think he's just a regular agent because I feel yeah, like no. he is, he's presenting himself not necessarily as an agent, but as a resistance leader. Okay. To the British. Right, but the resistance doesn't know who he is. Okay. So he's just a German agent. Is the He's not a member of their group. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So Maria is left with not a lot of options, and she plies her feminine wiles and manages to put Seletsky off for a little bit. And he also passes along the message. So she goes back, and somehow Sabinsky is back from England. Well, Sabinsky f- jumped out of a plane. Yeah, so he flies back to try to beat Seletsky there, but Seletsky caught a plane in Sweden that they didn't know he was going to get. So he was supposed to get there before mm-hmm. Seletsky, but he didn't. So now they're kind of behind the eight ball because if Seletsky gets the information to the Gestapo, then they're all dead. Yeah. The whole setup is a race to try and get to professor Seletsky before he can give this information to the Gestapo. But now he's there. And so they have to stop him from meeting with the Gestapo. So the general agreement is that somebody has to kill him. Or just get those those papers from him so that he doesn't give them to the Gestapo. First, we get the papers. If we get the papers, then whatever, who cares? If we don't get the papers, then that guy's got to die. And they decide right. that the best way to do this, since we are already all equipped with Nazi uniforms, is to pretend to be the Gestapo and try and intercept him and invite him to our fake office and talk to him there. Which is what Joseph Tura, a.k.a. Jack Benny, gets involved in, which is such a great setup. <laughs> It's hilarious. The iconic scene that Liam was talking about in the beginning of the show with, what's the line again? So they call me Concentration Camp Earhart. That's the line. That line is burned into my brain forever. (laughs) I love it. You can't say that in polite society. So like, it's not a reference that I make a lot, but I think it at least like three times a week. (laughs) Things go south pretty quickly as Soletsky realizes that uh, Joseph is definitely not Captain Earhart. Yeah, it turns out whether he is or is not a good actor, he's not a good improviser. So if he doesn't have enough lines, he kind of runs out of steam and doesn't know what to say. <laughs> and honestly, same. I am a terrible <laughs> improv. Right. Uh, I, I am not an improv set, actor. Right? You give me a, a script and I can I can do it. But you don't give me a script. I am just lost up there. I yeah. cannot yes and at all. Right. I'm I'm not yes and I'm no but. <laughs> so that ends with a, a brief chase where Seletsky ends up dead and Joseph decides he's going to pretend to be Seletsky and try to go get those notes back. And keep in mind, Seletsky is so where he's staying is where the Nazi high command is, correct? Because it seems like he has like apartments in this very nice hotel, but that's also where the Gestapo is. Or not the Gestapo, it's not the Gestapo I don't know. Gestapo, but that's like, it's a pretty much like a Nazi stronghold, but the Gestapo is operating out of a different office. Right, because he has to go and like see them, but to get in and out of the hotel, you have to pass by Nazi guards. Because the Gestapo and the German military were like two different... Mm-hmm. Two different entities. They were not the same thing, exactly. Right. Correct. They had different, yes, different leadership. So let me break in for just a second, since I'm at this point, it's at least twice I've forgotten to mention our researchers, and I really want to not make that a habit. So before I forget, thank you to 
Jack Johansson from Secret Police Podcast, who did our research on this one. His focus was obviously on the Secret Police, and I'll talk a little bit about that briefly. I won't go into depth on Polish history, but let's at least go back to World War I. Poland reemerged as a state after being partitioned between Germany, Austria, and the Russian Empire, a triple subjugation that existed since 1795. We saw the USSR and Nazi Germany form a tenuous peace in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August 1939. Both regimes invaded Poland, the Nazis from the West and the Soviets from the East. And if you've been following the secret police show so far, you know one secret police group is bad enough. Poland had the rare and horrific experience of two secret police subjecting the Polish people to their respective torment. During the 1939 invasion, the Soviets advanced to a predetermined line called the Curzon Line, stipulated by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Remember, the NKVD, the Soviet secret police at this time, practiced their techniques to cull non-Russians from annexed territories in Finland around the same time, and they practiced those techniques in Poland. The annexed portion of Poland suffered an estimated 1.2 million civilians deported from their homes and an additional 250,000 Polish military personnel deported during hostilities with the Soviets. Deputy Commissar of the NKVD and future chief of the KGB, Ivan Serov, was the deportation master in Poland. Serov took control of every detail, eliminating every perceived threat to the USSR. Bankers, business owners, hotel owners restaurateurs, prison wardens, clergymen, and members of political parties other than communists, and people who were expelled from the Communist Party. The NKVD even kidnapped Red Cross workers and deported people who traveled abroad or had some kind of contact with outsiders. If you guys want to check out the history of secret police, especially in the Soviet Union and Russia, but also in other countries, uh, Jack does a great job with his research and We'll give you all of the history on that, so go check out his podcast on all your platforms. Hello, my name is Jack, and I am the host of the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do, and I'm on a mission to help us all build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. I do this by exploring how dictators enforce their rule. On Secret Police, we explore the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. Currently, we are chronicling Russia's long relationship with secret police forces from Ivan the Terrible's Oprichniki, the Soviet secret police, up to the modern-day FSB. If you're into history, dark humor, and hearing about the worst of what the human race has to offer, this is the show for you. Listen to episodes of Secret Police on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Agents dismissed. So they shot Zaletsky in the theater. Great scene, by the way. Yeah, with his last mm-hmm. breath. I didn't realize this till my second viewing. He's trying to give a Heil Hitler as yes. he dies. <laughs> That's pretty great. Committed Nazi. Professor Zelensky. He's very committed Nazi. It's an amazing death scene. And it's on a stage with the curtains lifting. So it's kind of, he's, I can see Lubitsch really mixing. I don't know if he ever directed theater, but it's kind of cool how much he's mixing theater with film here. He got his start directing theater and then went into silent film. That's cool. A lot of people kind of, they, they credit a lot of his style and a lot of people who we think of as like the great early masters 
like Lubitsch, like Lang, like Hitchcock, they all got their start in silent films, really honing the visual aspect because mm. that's all they really had to tell the story. Right. Yep. So then these were the guys who made the transition pretty easily when they got into talking pictures. Yeah. So I could see the opportunity to raise a curtain and then give a character a great death scene on stage with an audience as if it was a play was like a cool moment for Lubitsch and everybody else right. in the mm-hmm. theater. Right. Who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> they hide Seletsky's body for a while, at least. And thankfully, Joseph looks kind of similar to Seletsky. When you put a fake beard on him. Right. Just a, just fake beard it up. It's fine. He goes to try to get the extra copies of... The underground report. Yeah, the documentation. He goes and he finds his wife there. Because... She wasn't allowed to leave because Seletsky was like, no, no, you just just keep her here for me. Keep her on ice for me until I get back, because that's not creepy at all. This is where things really start to twist in the wind. Because the real Colonel Earhart then sends for Seletsky. So now Joseph is seeing is now playing the opposite side of that same meeting. He has a few more lines, which is probably nice for him. And Earhart is is by no means as intelligent or as thoughtful as Seletsky was. So he he goes for it. And this is where he says the iconic line of he's concentration camp, Carl, or whatever. Uh, Earhart. (laughs) Carl. <laughs> that's great. I, that's what I kept thinking because it's the alliteration. <laughs> so they call me concentration caviar. <laughs> I, uh, I thought you would react just that way. I had to look him up because the guy who plays Colonel Earhart is so funny and his face is so expressive. He's like almost a Jim Carrey level of, uh, I mean, for this time. That's, uh, so I looked up, that's Sig Ruman who actually was a German who left Germany after World War I and served in the army on the German side in World War I. So it's one of the Nazis who is actually played by a German. And man, his reactions were just gold. And the extended bit that they do with Schultz all the way yeah. to his death <laughs> were so funny. Uh, I loved all of that. Right. Well, I don't even know if he dies. I think he fucked up shooting himself and then he's going to blame it on Schultz again. I couldn't tell if that was the implication or if they were going for like hardcore satire where he shot himself, but he was so like annoyed with Schultz and even like somehow it's not a literal, but like metaphorically, like even after death, his you know, he's able to yell at Schultz. I couldn't tell. Or maybe it's just in his dying breath. He decides to yell at Schultz. Pretty hilarious, though. <laughs> Get there. They and do they say how he gets out of that meeting with Earhart? I, I think it just kind of fades out, and then because then we see Earhart finding out in the next day or whatever that Seletsky has been murdered, and they find his corpse, and he's now meeting with Maria, trying to Earhart is now meeting with Maria, trying to get her to join the Nazi cause and be his and have dinner. <laughs> Yes, have, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, have dinner. dinner. Get to know each other better. Yeah, in bed, preferably. <laughs> I mean, it's Carol Lombard. Everybody wanted to sleep with Carol Lombard. I get it. I get it. But still creepy. Still, still creep, creepy. Though. Then Joseph calls, still pretending to be Seletsky. 
and goes to meet him. And then this is one of the most, this is one of like the darker, weirder scenes to me. Only because of who Lubitsch was, I think is how they got this scene passed. And because it's, it's so funny is Joseph is confronted with the real Soletsky's dead body and is left alone in a parlor with it to crack, presumably. And his immediate reaction is to be like, huh? Oh, I got this extra beard here. Ooh, here's a little razor. He shaves Soletsky down and puts a fake beard on him. And then they have one of the best fast talking comedy scenes in the film for my money. Yeah, that was, this was my favorite part of the movie, I think. This looks pretty bad for me, huh? <laughs> I, I felt like almost I was watching a Marx Brothers yeah. movie. Yep. Like, that's totally what it felt like in that moment that because of how rapid fire the interplay is. He fools Earhart, which, to be fair, Earhart isn't exactly the sharpest tool in the shed. He is pretty dumb. But they tri- he tricks him <laughs> into thinking that the dead body is the actual imposter. Right. But not only that, but even the way he does it is he doesn't even pull the beard himself. He gets Earhart to convince himself to pull the beard on this dead body, which then comes off and proves that the guy was an imposter, quote unquote. And I was like, wow, that was genius. And let's, yeah, let's just take a minute and appreciate his improv skills here for a second. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. He really regrouped at the end. When the chips are right. down, he was able to improv his way out. And then he still managed to... <laughs> when his troop of fake Nazis comes in to quote unquote, save him, even though at this point he had already saved himself, but they didn't know that. And they pick him up and the fake general yells at Colonel Earhart. <laughs> he still takes the time <laughs> when his beard gets pulled off in the whole farce to yell about the cheese line to uh, Colonel Earhart, which I was like, Oh, and he's talking <laughs> shit on his way out. That's pretty great. Great scene. Cause I, and I do love those little moments that happen where the Nazi command tells those funny stories about Hitler, like Mm -hmm. making fun of Hitler and even just sprinkling that in there. Cause it was absolutely something that was happening. Right. Well, and it also reminded me of honestly, oddly enough, cause I watched this growing up so much. It reminded me of the animated Robin hood Mm. when everybody starts singing the song and then like prince john flips shit when when he catches (laughs) the sheriff singing it yep and it's like it it reminded me of that kind of bit where it's only it's just for some reason hitler ending up as a piece of cheese is like super offensive well it's pretty hilarious too how it both times the bit is that mostly everyone's willing to make fun of hitler you know, behind Nazi closed doors until someone is more Nazi than you and calls you out on it. And then it's all how Hitler, how Hitler, I'm totally loyal. And like, I didn't mean right. it, <laughs> but it's also a line of dialogue from their play that they were doing about the Gestapo. Right. And like makes its way into the real world. Yes. And I also think that, uh, uh, man, if you guys have ever listened to, I've mentioned it before, but behind the bastards is a pretty great podcast from one of the writers of uh, former writers of cracked where he has guests on and they talk about like the most horrible people in history. Sometimes they are Hitler types. Sometimes it's just like Elon Musk. So he kind of has a range (laughs) of people he's willing to talk about. They did a rerun recently because they were taking a break for a week and it was Hitler's sex life. And it is fascinating. It's about who his dad married. Uh, Spoiler alert. It's his 16 year old uh, niece, which I had no idea. Uh, also, someone 
Hitler ended up flirting with was a 16 year old. Hitler basically was an incel. Like when you look at the actual record. Oh, yes. And uh, Robert, the host, kind of takes several side notes to be like, just in case you didn't know, the entire Nazi party, like they were just rife with gossip and drama. They were like constantly backstabbing each other and constantly talking shit about each other and constantly trying to one up each other. So like there's when you look into it, there's like a lot of petty drama in the Nazi party. And so it's kind of hilarious to watch these guys turn on each other and then try and be like, oh, don't turn me in. I'm totally loyal. Like because it's like relatively realistic, even though it's played for laughs. There's a really great book about um, the Nazis use of methamphetamines and and Hitler's use of drugs. Mm -hmm. I've talked about it on the show before. I think it's called Buzzed. And or is it Blitzed? Blitzed, that's it. And it is just very apparent in there because it's all a lot of it was a uh, new original research done by a German because it's a German book done by a German guy who went and like read do- Hitler's doctor's notes because he had his own doctor because only one dude was willing to be like sure sure we'll get you going in the morning with a little meth and we'll wind you down at night with a little opium mm-hmm. and just keep it going vitamin B shots as much as we can okay buddy don't kill me thanks wild anyway so now our troop is safe but they are trapped in in Poland and are kind of being hunted. Basically, they've all been exposed to the point that they're going to get figured out soon. Right. So they have to get out. And they don't have real connections. So their solution is to uh, take their subterfuge to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Because Hitler is coming to visit and the Germans are putting on a... Big show to entertain him. And so they try. They, they pull another fast one of, of replacing Hitler this time rather than the colonel. And it's uh, he I, I found it amusing because like, I don't think he ever talks. Right. Right. No, he just does the Hitler stare. Yeah. He's not supposed to talk in when he comes in in the beginning and says, hi, myself. They're like, you don't have any lines. Right. What does yes. he, spe- he say? I say nothing. Then say nothing like it's one of those. But the the game is to get the real Nazis to turn around by a distraction just fast enough that the fake Nazis and fake Hitler can come out of a door and basically show up and be like, what the hell's going on here? And it's just like this is terrible. We're leaving and then leave in the actual Nazi motorcade. Which somehow miraculously Hitler's car without any forewarning and not at the time that the play is over or whatever, just happens to swing around the corner and pick them up. I was like, that's a little sus, but I'll go with it because it's a comedy like whatever. (laughs) But yeah, they impersonated Hitler like, you know, 20 feet away from Hitler behind some closed door, which is pretty hilarious. And also, while the scene is totally different and this is more for Liam than for Katie, since I know she hasn't seen this movie yet. But a movie we may or may not cover coming up soon, the whole concept of us trying to pull a fast one on Hitler coming to a theater near you uh, reminded me a lot of the scene in Inglorious Bastards where the plot is totally different and what happens is different, but it definitely has a similar feel to it where I'm like, I know Tarantino got some inspiration for this. Tarantino has 1000% seen this movie at least a few times for sure. A lot. Yeah. Say what you want about Quentin Tarantino. The man knows his cinema and he knows movies and he's seen an awful lot of them and he appreciates a pretty wide range of shit. 
True. And to be fair, if you're going to make a movie that's even somewhat a comedy with Nazis, it only makes sense to do your research and watch, you know, the five, ten famous films that are parodies of of Nazis. Like, it kind of makes sense to do that. They then get in Hitler's plane and fly away. And they, they get into Scotland and... Joseph is hailed as a hero. He made it. He's the hero now. And Maria says, oh, well, he wants to play Hamlet. And during the to be or not to be speech, he's staring (laughs) at Sabinski. Who's out in the house, dutifully watching. And then another guy gets up and leaves during the middle of his speech. (laughs) Because his wife is a hoe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was pretty good. Did you? Which is a much better ending than Ministry of Fear. Yes, for we sure. We not have a cake ending. If you guys aren't uh, on our Patreon, you really should jump on there because we just talked about another movie that's not entirely dissimilar from this one, an old Fritz Lang called Ministry of Fear. And there were a lot of parallels I was drawing on this rewatch of To Be or Not. To and Be. they were made around the same time. Yeah, for sure. Also, while we're plugging stuff, Conan the Barbarian with our special returning guest, history podcaster Daniele Bolelli just came out. So you can jump in on that as well for four bucks a month and you get a brand new episode and sometimes a little extra stuff at least once a month. did i not catch this until my second viewing but i had to go back and rewind it and actually go frame by frame for a second did you guys catch how and when joseph tura loses his fake mustache in the car ride to the airport yes it's what he he's looking out the window and the wind blows his mustache off right but if you go back and watch it it doesn't fly off it's an actual editing trick they somehow kept them on the little you know rolling back projection whatever they were doing to make the car look like it was moving it's really well done the only way you can tell that it's a trick is because the mustache disappears from one frame to another and so it's so immediate that you're like you know that it's a camera slash editing trick because it doesn't fly off it just disappears but Mm -hmm. i looked very carefully the actors faces despite the fact that they're not in traction or anything but they were perfectly in the right spot so you don't get it's not like um throne of blood where you know you do see a little bit of body movement that shows you that there's a cut their faces don't move at all just the mustache disappears i was like i don't know how the hell they did that but i can tell somebody right outside the frame who comes snaps it off and they kept rolling and then they just snipped that out in editing it's pretty good because they hold really still so like nothing else tells you that that mustache disappeared other than that but i thought that was pretty great that's that Lubitsch touch, baby. <laughs> yeah, he had a, He had the skills. Snatch that mustache right off your face. And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask ourselves, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam, this was your pick. Why don't you go first? The objective of this film, I think, was pretty clearly to lampoon the Nazis, but also really do right by the people living on the ground in Poland at the time. Uh, I think this was a movie that, I mean, obviously it's a World War II movie being made during World War II, but 
that's why it was made. It's trying to do something for the war effort to demoralize your enemies and boost up your allies as much as a comedy is able to do. Uh, I think that is, that is the, the objective of this movie in the time that it, that it was made because it is funny and it is entertaining and it's playing to the strengths of the director and its cast, but it also feels kind of dangerous. (laughs) Like it's, you know, it is, the, the the movie opens with them trying to do a play about the Gestapo and the government censor comes in and says, you can't do this play. It's going to make Hitler mad. And so that I, I think is a little meta because I think this movie was ready to be released in 1941, but they ended up pushing it back for multiple reasons. But a big one was. Should we be making this movie about World War One in 1941? Do we Would need we to poke re- the bear? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, is this is is this in bad taste? Do we like? I mean, we really it would really suck to make this movie and then lose. But yeah, it's one of it. It, it has a certain call to action to it that is indicative of you know movie. You see a lot of World War II movies like uh, uh, Back to Bataan and things like that that are basically trying to like rally rally the home front. And this doesn't have that exact kind of flag-waving hurrah kind of tone to it, because I think it's a lot more subtle than that. But those elements are still there, where it's trying to like bolster the resistance and aggravate the Nazis and make them look stupid, but also they're still dangerous. And it really does a good job depicting how insidious the messaging and the ideology can be if you let it. And I do think it was on target in its time. You know, Katie, like you said, it, it was probably fairly controversial. So maybe it works better now than it did in its, in its moment. But I, I see all of those elements there. I think this, I mean, maybe it got more on target the the further away it is removed from the time that it was made. But but yeah, no, I think this movie is funny. I think it's dark. I think it's tense where it needs to be tense. And it you really have no idea what you're getting into when you start watching this movie, no matter where you pick it up, as I can attest. You watch it from the middle, you're going to get a very different kind of movie. But it's it's a... Uh, it's a lot of things all at once and it's intricately woven and yes, I, I like this movie a lot. I don't know if I'd call it one of my favorites, but it was one that I was really excited to talk about on this show because it is, you know, very much a, a war movie. Like we, we get some good war footage in there and it's, it's very, it's very on our mission, but uh, it's also old and fun and light and quirky. And it has had a, impact where you you see things from this movie and Ernst Lubitsch across the board in things like Inglorious Bastards in Grand Budapest Hotel in in a lot of filmmakers today are still trying to kind of chase that Lubitsch touch and and just find what that that thing is that that made his movies so tight and so elegant but also funny and risky in some really interesting ways. And I think this is a a great example of that. Katie. 
I think Lubitsch's objective in making this film is to talk about a complex emotional story because, well, this does in some ways stay on the surface of things. It acknowledges the complicated relationship that uh, Joseph and Maria have, and it doesn't give us a huge picture of how their lives change, but you can see that there has been a dramatic change in, from the beginning of the film. And then once the Nazi invasion happens, things are very different. And the situation seems much more dire, as it absolutely was. And it uses the comedy to kind of get you to buy in. And then it uses that buy-in to draw connections to the reality of a lot of people's experiences during the war and how even this acting troupe, which acting was still was in a much better position than it had been in, like, say, the late 1800s or something like that, where being an actor was considered very frivolous and not and something like only, quote unquote, low people do. But it still was, wasn't quite the way we look at acting today, I would say. And they still, all of them, unquestioningly do their bit to protect the Polish resistance and to fight the Nazis in the small way that they can. And I also think, like Liam said, like these, the Nazis are such buffoons in this, <laughs> but they are all the more dangerous for that buffoonery. Like Earhart's drastic overconfidence and also incredible, his fear of being thought not a good enough Nazi, but really is a big contrast that shows us how Nazis can be just regular people, but that does not excuse the casual cruelty that they you know, excised upon the world. I think the target, this is definitely one of those where it grew into being more on target as, you know, the fear and the danger of World War II passed, you know, once the Axis was defeated and people's lives started to return to more normal. I think it became much easier for people to enjoy and to kind of sit back and relax rather than like, okay, but... What's going to happen here? <laughs> oh, no. Like, there's a lot of anxiety that you didn't have to hold anymore because Hitler's dead. So who cares what that guy thinks? And it has a... <laughs> looking back now, it has, like, this almost prescient portrayal of the idiocy of the Nazi high command. And I'm not all of them or anything like that, but... You heard it here. Hashtag not all Nazis. <laughs> no, no. Some of them were were fairly intelligent right. people. They weren't all idiots, it's, that's for sure. But the idiocy that was like the heart of Nazi ideology and Hitler himself, who, well, a charismatic man, was absolutely not, not the smartest guy. <laughs> and that is just kind of glimpsed at here. But if you know about the inner workings, especially as uh, the Third Reich crumbled into di complete disarray, all of that that is portrayed in this comes out from 
you know, Earhart killing himself rather than face the consequences of letting these people go right under Hitler's nose or maybe killing himself. Well, and for trying to move in on, quote unquote, Hitler's woman. Right, right. <laughs> like, there's a lot of fear going on there. Yeah. And I mean, rightly, probably rightly so. So, well, it may have been just a little too close to home, I think, when it initially premiered. It definitely is something that has grown and become accepted. I mean, it is, like we said at the top, a very uh, well-rated movie, very well thought of. Um, I think it's like number 49 on AFI's top 100 movies of all time list. Not that those things really mean anything. Very, you know, subjective, but it means a little something, I Mm. guess. And yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it felt very modern, almost, for a movie that was made in 1941. It has a lot of style in a way that movies at that time didn't necessarily have because they did not give them the time while they were making the movie because they were churning movies out like gangbusters during that during that period. And because the Lubitsch touch, it has that auteur feel to it is what we would call it today. And Lubitsch was kind of one of the early creators who had that kind of sensibility where you watch a movie and you can tell who who was the creative force behind it. So, and I think it's probably something that you could show to someone who doesn't necessarily do old movies, you know, that's not really their thing. And I think they would have, it would be a much lower barrier to entry to kind of get them on board of like, no, no, not all old movies are whatever simplistic idea a lot of people have of them. Some of them have these very complex comedic plot lines and they have a lot to say and they're very aware that they have a lot to say. So yeah, I really liked it. It was a good choice, Liam. Dan, want to bring us home? I'm sure I'll be mostly just summarizing what you guys already said, but I think the objective here was to make fun of Nazis while they were still invading shit and nobody really had any idea how the war was going to turn out. So yeah, I really echo Katie's sentiments of like some of the laughter in these theaters must've been relatively nervous laughter because you're like, uh, is Hitler going to win? Like what's going to happen here? So just a huge difference in the audience between watching this in a theater in 1942 and watching this uh, maybe in a celebratory fashion right after the war was over. It's like, let's go watch some shit that makes fun of Hitler because that guy's dead and we won, right? Like you could have that. And then you move into decades later. And again, we're 80 plus years later. And yeah, I couldn't help but think of the at least you know, three specific times that I mentioned where I saw modern films and where they got their inspiration from. And this is one of those films that clearly contributed to them, which always reminds me when I'm watching, because I'm not that experienced with older film, when I'm watching something modern and I think, oh, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. I always have to kind of second guess myself and be like, well, I've never seen this before, but I can't say, has this ever been done before? I don't know, especially when it's not something that's involving some complex spaceship CGI, whatever. But, you know, I think kids nowadays are going to go back and watch the original Alien or the original Star Wars and look at some of the spaceships and be like, oh, I didn't know you could do stuff like this before CGI. Like they just used real models and blew up real stuff, but they used cinema to make it look real and i think you get a little bit of that technology here in the depiction of warsaw in like i said earlier the map painting that 
you know, for what technology they were using, I thought looked really good. I agree with you. The war scenes are well done as well. Uh, the anti-air stuff, those all look pretty real. They were probably using real guns with blanks or doing real footage of AA guns in action. And I especially found the, I guess I'm moving on to whether it's on target or not. Um, so yes, I do think this was mostly on target. Although like Katie said, it does change over the years. Um, I especially found the bombing scene where they're in the basement of the theater and the bombs are going off. There was something about the sound effect of the bombs that I was like, this is a pretty believable sound. Like it feels like what bombs would sound like, or I imagine bombs would sound like going off, you know, 30 feet above you or whatever. And then of course they get out and see the destruction. There's several times where I'm pretty sure they were models. You see the building on fire at the end that looked like a model. It looked good, but I think the trick there was to use a model. I think what they pull up on screen is good. The actual war stuff is good. It certainly makes the Nazis look like buffoons and, you know, isn't quite getting into the Holocaust or anything like that, minus the concentration camp Earhart jokes. And so, yeah, it's kind of dark and light at the same time. They don't get into too much killing, minus the one murder that we see in the film. So, did I like it? Yeah, you know, I think I started it a little late my first time, so I fell asleep a couple times, which is really no fault of the movie. I was just tired, so I was like, okay, I got most of this, but I need to watch it again. And it's one of those films where I was really glad I watched it a second time because not being confused about the plot and just being able to enjoy the dialogue and the comedy without thinking too hard, like, wait, who's the real Nazi here? And what is this guy doing right now? Was a better experience my second time around. So I'm glad that I sat down to watch it again. I get into this with Jackie sometimes. I think she's a little less into old film than even I am. And I'm still inexperienced at it and getting used to it. And I do think there's something to the fact that to a modern viewer, there's something about, I mean, I've talked about my feelings about black and white, but also just the way old films were made. We're just, it asks more patience of the audience. They're just more dialogue heavy. They're usually more plot heavy. They're not quite as visual as a lot of modern film. And so you have to kind of, at least for me, watching old film, I have to get into a flexible state of mind where I'm like, okay, this was from 1941. I'm going to, I'm not going to get bored. Like I'll sit down and watch the whole thing, but I need to take it for what it is. And I think this does a good job for the time. It's got a couple of moments that drag a little bit, but overall it's pretty entertaining and like Katie says, there's some of that Lubitsch touch where it's surprisingly modern feeling. The comedy is for certain scenes, like the whole narrative of Hitler walking around in the streets at the beginning. I was like, oh, this really plays off like almost a modern comedy. And it's self-aware in that way. And I think, again, the moments where the director decided to blend theater and cinema in those moments, like the professor's death, I thought were really, really well done moments. So... Yeah, I really liked it and it felt pretty timeless. I think a hundred years from now, this film will have a very similar impact to what it has now. But during five years after and 10 years after it, I think the impact would have been different. So that's pretty interesting. There's not a lot of films like that. So what are we doing next, guys? 
So next, I think I'm going to put out my second veteran interview, another one that I have had in the wings for a long time that I recorded at the beginning of this project. This is an interview with a friend of mine, Rich, who was in the Marine Corps Infantry. He was a tow gunner in Iraq during 0305 during the initial invasion of the second Iraq war. And uh tow gun is a basically big wire guided missile that fires off the back of a Humvee. So he was sort of specially trained with a specific type of weapon um, in an infantry platoon and took part in three or four deploy. I think we talk about three out of four of his deployments. Um, we didn't quite get to the battle of Ramadi that he was involved in, but this is a uh, pretty for real war interview. Rich was actually involved in a lot of combat and, you know, View, uh, listener discretions advised people were killed and there is a lot of war going on in that interview and we kind of cover a little bit of the history of that war and what happened in his experience um, he's a decorated war veteran and i'm really glad that he sat down and told me his story so we will have that out for you guys next time around so thanks everyone for tuning in and we appreciate you guys being patient and waiting for our episodes. We're still playing catch up and getting on to regular release dates, but we are doing our damnedest and Katie and Liam are editing their butts off to be a total part of this project where we're all firing on all cylinders. So I want to thank them for all their effort and all their work because they've been doing a phenomenal kick-ass job as your hosts and editors. So thank you guys. Uh, like we said, check out our Patreon if you haven't yet. Four bucks a month. Get a lot of extra fun episodes. Check out our Facebook page at Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group where you can bring in your opinions, requests, comments, suggestions. Uh, you can shit on us. Do whatever you want. And we will see you guys on the next one. Bye. Goodbye. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and, by opposing, end them. To die. To sleep no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely? The pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have, than fly to others that we know not of? Thus, conscience makes cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought.
and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action.